Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, those are um, reminders that we need. Um, Not exactly easy to say. And um, not without context. Each one of us in this room this morning have had the opportunity to sing about your goodness to us, about your faithfulness to us, and now about your sovereignty over all things. And God, we ask that you would give us understanding where we need it. Lord, I thank you that your love for us far outweighs any difficulty we're going through. Now, Lord, I pray today we would feel like that, that we would have a fresh glimpse of your goodness to us. Help us as we walk through the word today. Guide my mouth, my tongue, my understanding. Open our hearts, and I pray the Spirit would do something wonderful in this place. In Jesus' good name I pray. Amen. Amen. Now you can have a seat. If you grab your Bibles, go to Ruth chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, <clears throat> excuse me. If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles available out in the uh, lobby. And then uh, in addition to that, there's a, a box of some Bibles that were donated out this door here. You can just walk through there and pilfer as many of those as you want. Um, and perhaps you, you want to give gifts to your children for Christmas. Grab the box. Give them four or five Bibles, they'll be pleased for years. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. Extra hour of sleep, did it help anybody? Okay, good. I'm going to keep talking until I find Ruth because I can't find it for some reason. There it is, found it. So, so let me tell you about the Ruth and the study that we're about to do. We're going to take four weeks, we're going to go through a chapter every week. Um, we're going to continue to use um, that, like the video that we did, I think that was that's somewhat helpful for us to be able to see uh, and to hear, and just to do it a little bit different. So we're going to do the scripture reading for that each week. And, and as we go through the book of Ruth, you're going to find a few things. Some of you may not be familiar with Ruth. I'll be honest with you, it was probably six years ago um, before I really actually spent time in the book of Ruth. And as I read it, and as I uh, studied it, and as I spent time in it, I found it to be um, actually pretty cool. Um, the ladies among us seem to be the most enthusiastic about the book of Ruth, Dudes, I'm telling you, it's an amazing story. We'll be fine. Don't worry. Um, <clears throat> there is, I'd, I'd call it a fairy tale, uh, except for the fact that it's true. But it feels like a fairy tale at times. And there's, it's filled with, uh, you, you've got like coincidences that just happen. You've got uh, a man who treats a young woman the way every young woman should be treated. That's next week. I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be fun. Then you've got this really weird thing that happens in chapter three that takes a little bit of explaining and understanding. Then you get to chapter four, and all of the pieces of the story just kind of come together from every angle. In fact, so much so that it, it looks forward into the future and blows your mind when you wrap your head around what just happened in the story of Ruth. But for all that to happen, and for the story to be sweet and filled with good news, you have to set the context. And the context of the story of Ruth is not easy. It's dark. It can be discouraging. But there's just a glimmer of hope that's thrown our way at the end of the chapter. A glimmer of hope that's going to help us take steps as we leave this place to trust in God's faithful love for his people. So let me, let me begin, as every good book begins, you can guess where, 
verse 1. Yep, five years of seminary right there. It says this in verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Let me stop there. I promise we'll get a little bit through stuff a little faster. But, but, but it sets the context for us. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So let me go back. What is, what is it talking about when it talks about the judges having ruled? Well, it doesn't take much other than to look to the left in your Bible, to the, the book of Judges, uh, and, and you have the stories of all the judges that are there. The time of the judges would have been from the, the death of Joshua leading up to the anointing of the first king of Israel, who was King Saul. It was in that time period that the people... Uh, really kind of started to tailspin. The people of God kind of went off the deep end. And, and, and let, me, let me read two verses that help explain that to you. In Judges chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, this whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. So that means when the, the first, this generation passed into eternity, they are no longer with us. The generation that's underneath them, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for them. That is not an encouraging comment to be made about a group of people. Then you get to the very last verse in the book of Judges, and it talks about how in those days Israel had no king, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So, uh, any of you a school teacher? Okay, so in your classroom, what I think you should do is just let every student do exactly what's right in their own eyes. How many detentions are you going to hand out? Are you allowed to do detentions anymore? Not that I would have ever experienced a detention in my history, but it's going to cause some problems. When everybody's doing exactly what they think is right, well, what I think is right is different than what you think is right. And when that becomes the moral compass, we're in trouble. And so as you read through the judges, you see that continue to happen. And you see the people continue to rebel against God and his authority in their lives. And so you have what is known as the, the cycle of judges. And it begins like this. The people of God rebel against God. God disciplines his people by sending in uh, an invader or sending in an enemy who would oppress his people. His people, now desperate because they're being oppressed, fall on their faces like, Oh Lord, we're so sorry. Forgive us. Help us. And God sends a judge who goes after the oppressor, who goes after the enemy, conquers the oppressor and the enemy, and then they have years of peace and tranquility until the people begin to rebel against God. And so God judges his people by sending in a, 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 an enemy or an oppressor who, who torment the people of God. And then the people of God get to their place like, oh God, help us. And then God says, okay, and he sends a judge who conquers the enemy or the oppressor and the people live in peace and tranquility until and as you read judges it just continues to do that over and over and over again it's within that time period that the story of ruth is happening it's not an encouraging time period is it it's not marked with faithfulness it's marked with repeated sin repentance but repeated sin and chaos it says that this happened in the, the days when the judges ruled and there was a famine in the land. Please, 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 please don't make the mistake of doing what most of us do when we read Scripture. We read that phrase, there was a famine in the land, and we just go right to the next verse. Stop for a second. There's a famine. Think about that. It's no longer the question, what are we going to have for dinner? The question is now, when are we going to eat again? Th think about the modern day famines that have occurred around the world, particularly in the sub-Saharan. You, you look at that and you see the moms 
who have to make a decision that none of us should ever have to make, which child eats today. Now that's the context of the book of Ruth. So at the time the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, the, wives of his two, no, sorry, the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and they lived there. So now we get a little introduction to the, the key characters of the story. So, so you've got this man named Elimelech and his wife whose name is Naomi, and they have two sons whose names are Malon and Kilion. Just a little bit of insight into the type of family this is. Let's look at the meanings of their names. You've got Elimelech. Awesome name. It means, my God is king. A great name. Elimelech, my God is king. Then you have his wife, Naomi, whose name means sweetness. Sweetie pie. My lovely. Two awesome names, right? And then they have two boys, and it seems like they're the ones that began this modern fad of finding the weirdest names to name your newborn child. You, you, you all had one just pop in your head. These two win hands down. Let me promise you, or beg of you, please do not name your children this. Malon and Killian. Malon means sickly. Killian means near to death. So I got an idea. Let's name our kids pneumonia and leukemia. It's like, well, what are you doing? Why would you name your kids that? It's actually kind of a, a weird thing that, that happens there. And so, so in this family now, they are facing the famine. And, and think about that, that Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, is realizing there is no food. He's got to feed his wife and his two boys. My God is king. He obviously can't provide for my family, though. So we're going to move to Moab. Now, Moab's not a a great place to move if you're an Israelite. It's 50 miles away from Bethlehem of Judah, which is where uh, Elimelech and Naomi are living. And so they move the the 50 miles to Moab. And the the Moabites uh, are a group of people who came into being because of an incestual relationship between Lot and his daughter. The, the, the people of Israel were wandering through the wilderness and they asked permission of the Moabites to, to be able to cross through their land to, to, to shrink their trip a little bit. And the Moabites were like, absolutely not. You can't cross through our land. Go around. The Moabites, in, in Numbers chapter 25, it says that the, the Moabite women seduced the men of Israel and, and brought them into illicit relationships which brought upon them the judgment of God and 24,000 people were struck dead as a result. And yet Elimelech, who's looking around and finds no food, says, I'm going to move my family from Bethlehem of Judah down to Moab because they have food. And so, yeah, I know they're pagan, but at least they got food. It's a dangerous decision, isn't it? It's a terrifying decision. And yet, that was the decision they made. But from that moment, things got worse. Because after moving to Moab, at some point, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. So think about that for a moment. Elimelech leaves Bethlehem of Judah in order to not die. And he goes to Moab. And what happens? He dies. 
And now Naomi is without a husband, but she's got her two boys. She has her two boys, Malon and Killian. So what does she do? They're of marrying age. She marries them off to nice Moabite women, pagans. And so now Malon and Killian have their two wives, and it says that they had been married for about, or they had lived there for about 10 years. This is the end of verse 4, the beginning of verse 5. And at that time, after about 10 years, both Malon and Killian also died. And now Naomi's left without her two sons and her husband. Um, Some of you have experienced that. If you can possibly, and I don't know that you can, but if you can possibly move past the emotion of losing your husband, of losing your two sons, this actually left Naomi in a much worse space than, or place than, than just the emotion of it and the emotional toll that's taken on her. This is devastating for a woman to be living in a foreign land and to lose her husband and her two boys. She has just lost all opportunities to be provided for. Now she's living in this foreign land and her life is in trouble. Who's going to take care of her? Nobody's alive anymore. She's all by herself. Feel the weight of that. Feel the fear that you have walking into a strange place by yourself. Any of you get that fear? I have no idea what to expect. I have no idea what's behind this door. I am here by myself. Now add to it the emotional toll of losing your husband and your two boys, and now you're beginning to scratch the surface of what Naomi's feeling. Verse six, there's a change. What, what happens is while in Naomi, uh, sorry, not while in Naomi, while in Moab, Naomi hears that the Lord had come to the aid of his people. So, so I want to spend a few moments in verse 6 and, and kind of jump out and just kind of hit some things that I think are really important for us to understand about God. So Naomi's in Moab, and she hears that God has come and he has broken the famine. So, so it's clear that the famine was broken by God. This is the very hand of God coming to, to, to serve his people and breaking the famine. This is what we would call the providence of God. So with the providence of God, you see it in two different ways. You see it with the, the visible providence of God. That is more uh, what happens in Scripture many times where, where God would act miraculously for his people and you couldn't help but see what it was that God was doing. So, so think through of the, the events that happened at the Red Sea when Moses was leading the children of Israel and being pursued by Pharaoh and the, the sea parting. Think about Joshua going up against Jericho and them walking around the wall and with his ridiculous battle plan and the wall falling down. Think about Gideon going against what, what seemed like locusts. The, the number of Midianites were just innumerable, and he had his 300 men. Th- th- think about uh, the manna that showed up on the ground. It's obvious the very providence of God in those visible ways, but the providence of God for us today most commonly happens in his invisible hand of providence. It's that moment where you look back at your life, and you see the road that you're on, and you stop, and you look back and go, oh, oh, I didn't see that when I was going through that. See, God's providential hand was guiding you even in that. There's a problem, though. When we talk about the providence of God, there's a natural tension that, that, that comes as a result 
of understanding the providence of God. We've all felt the tension at one time or another. And that tension exists between two key and core doctrines, character traits of who God is. The first one is this. God is sovereign. That means God is the highest authority. He's ruling. He's reigning. He he rules over Satan. He rules over demons. He rules over life. He rules over death. He he rules over sickness. He rules over heaven and hell and birds and animals and fish. And and, and I know God's not condoning it. He's not encouraging to participate in it. But God even rules and reigns over what lottery numbers come up. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, it says this, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So think about that the next time you pick up a a dice or, or spin your dial to play your game at home. Whatever number comes up didn't just happen to come up because gravity and the earth jigged when it should have jagged or whatever. It's God is determining what it is that comes up. That's how in control our God is. He is over everything from the, the most amazing aspect of all of creation to the aspects of creation that haven't even been discovered yet. He's overall, he's ruling, he's reigning with absolute power and absolute authority. God is sovereign. But that exists in tension with another key doctrine, key character trait of God, and it's this. God is good. He's loving, he's patient, he's merciful, he's gracious. He's kind and probably the most mind-blowing of them all. He is for us. God is good. God is sovereign. See, that, that brings attention. And the tension between those two truths, it's not a bad one, and it's not one that I can explain away. It's not one that we can resolve today. That In fact, that's going to be a tension until the very day we pass away. God is sovereign, and God is good. The problem is the way people try to resolve that tension on their own is they pick one over the other. So they'll say, see, see God is sovereign, but he's not good. And where that leads you, what error that leads you to, is you're basically viewing God as if he was one of those, those Greek mythological small g gods who, who have all authority, all power, but they're mean, they're cruel, they, 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 they're indiscriminate in their evil, but they're certainly in control. And so if you believe that God is sovereign, but God isn't good, then what you've just done is created a God that would fit into the study of Greek mythology. But I think probably more common is the opposite extreme. Where instead of believing that God is sovereign but God isn't good, we actually err on this side. God is good, but he's not sovereign. So what that leads us to is a false teaching. It's a false teaching that's called open theism. And in a nutshell, what that is, is this. God is good. He loves you. He means well. And when you're heartbroken, he shares in your tears. But, but when bad things happen, he is just as surprised as you are. No. That makes my God weak and impotent. 
we make the mistake oftentimes, even in in church settings. God didn't know this was going to happen. God was surprised by this, just as surprised as you are. And God had no idea what this was going to happen. And no, my God isn't puny. He's not shocked. Man, we, we have a great God who's sovereign and omnipotent and almighty. And, and when you consider the fact that God is sovereign, that's a rock we can stand on. He's always in control. And that's how we can cling to the truth. That's how we can know that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose, Romans eight twenty eight. The tension that comes with recognizing the sovereignty and goodness of God is God's in control. And if God is good, how could he allow? Again, like I said, I, I, can't, I can't resolve the tension for you. But just to, <laughs> oh, w- without getting too far off track, one of the key pieces of understanding that is this. Whose definition of good are you going with? Does God know better than me? Absolutely. Um, God says, my ways aren't your ways. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. There's confidence and hope that I can take from that. Not discouragement, not depression. There's, There's great hope in the fact that God knows way more than I do. See, the, the problem is, is when it comes to good, and I, I, my view of good is this. I can boil it down for you, right? Here's my view of good. My view of good is there's no more sin, there's no more sickness, no more cancer, no more death, no more accidents, no more crime, no more people losing their jobs, no cars that ever break down, houses that function exactly the way they're supposed to function. The weather would be 70 and sunny all the time. With occasional rain, the crops would always grow. Sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? See, we had all of that until sin came. And we will experience all of that again soon. Soon. So now, now, uh, for time's sake, I need to get moving. So, so, so God, uh, sorry, uh, God created the famine. God broke the famine. Naomi knows that. And now you have this conflict that happens as the ladies have this, this heart to heart. She gets her two daughters-in-law in verse eight. And, and she's like, we, they start on the journey. And then she says to her two daughters-in-law, listen, just go back. Don't come with me. Go back home. Go back to your mamas. Go back to your daddies. Go back to your gods, which is mind-blowing that Naomi would say that. Go back. Just go, don't come with me. There's nothing with me if you were to come with me. And then she, she kind of sneaks in there and introduces this idea in verse 11 and 12 of this, this Leverite marriage. And a Leverite marriage, which we're going to have to talk about when we get to chapter 3 and chapter 4, is, is this idea that, that when a, a husband died, a near relative of that husband would marry his widow in order to continue the family line. See, at this point, Naomi's family line is kaput. Elimelech's dead, the two boys are dead, no one is going to carry on the name. And so she introduces this to them by saying this, listen, I don't have any more sons. You married the two that I have, they're gone. I have no more. I mean, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not even married, so I can't even produce any more sons. 
And even if I did, are you going to stand around and wait till they're old enough for you to marry? I mean, this is pointless. It is hopeless for you to come back to Bethlehem with me. Instead, what I would prefer, you go home. You just go back to them. Go home. And one of the daughters-in-law, listen. (laughs) And then there's Ruth. Ruth gives us what is an amazing couple of verses. She says this in verse 16. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. See, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Man, that is like, whoa. Any of you ever heard that said at a wedding? Okay, good. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is great. Think about that. That's the daughter-in-law saying that to the mother-in-law. I think we should introduce that into the wedding ceremonies from now on. (laughs) Let's bring your mom up. Let's see how this goes. Repeat your vows after me. Where you go, I'll go. And no, so, so it's, 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 it's amazing the level of commitment that, that Ruth is giving to Naomi, particularly when you consider this. Ruth's entire view of God has been given to her by listening to Naomi. The, the Naomi that says this, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And somehow Ruth hears that and says, hey, where you go, I'm going. I'm with you. I want your God to be my God, which makes absolutely no sense, which is why I believe, and this is kind of free, but whatever, so I believe that, that for her to make this choice, Ruth had in some way to be motivated by God. Because what just happened is Naomi painted the future as dark as she possibly could. There's no hope for you. There's no husbands for you. There's no outcome for you. God has dealt so very bitterly with me. That's the picture of God that Naomi floats at Ruth. And she says, great. She grabs Naomi's Naomi's hand and she races into the darkness with her and says, let's go. I'm in. So the two women then head home to Bethlehem, verse 19. And when they get to Bethlehem, they're surrounded by whispers. Hey, 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 hey. Isn't that Naomi? Have you ever returned home and had somebody say something about you like that? Where you overheard it? Um, I, I overheard it. It was more than overheard. We had taken my kids to this thing, and um, we were in the middle of town where I grew up, and this car zoomed in. Lady jumped out, ran over, and she's like, oh, wait, I've got information for you. I'm like, oh, and I leaned over to my wife, and I was like, that's Mrs. Nelson. I went to school with her son, Buddy. And so she, she runs over. She's like, here, I've got, and she's handing us pamphlets about the town I had grown up in. A little weird. Take the pamphlet. I'm like, oh, thank you, thank you, thanks, thanks. I'm like, thank you, Mrs. Nelson. And she was like, what? what? I said, I, oh, I know you. I went to school with your son. She's like, you did? I'm like, yeah, it's Frank Taylor. <laughs> and she turned, like, pale. Her mouth dropped. She's like, oh. We thought you were dead. Well, all right. Not sure how to take that. Naomi comes into town and she overhears the whispers of the people saying, wait. Isn't that lovely? 
Isn't that sweetness? And Naomi hears the whispers about her and she turns in. This is where she makes the transition to the bitter mother-in-law because she turns her attention to these people who are whispering about her and she says, call me Mara because God has dealt so bitterly with me. That's a, that's a lovely mom-in-law. Don't call me lovely. Call me bitter. I left this place full. I left this place great. I left this place with everything I needed. My husband, my two boys. I left this place whole. And yet God afflicted me. God emptied me. God ruined me. Now, for those of you who've probably been in church a very long time, you, so you clutch your chest, you're like, I can't believe she said that out loud. Man, take the mask off. Admit that there are times when you think that God is far from you. Admit that there are times where you feel like God's sovereign hand isn't good. Think, think, think about God's hand and, and what it felt like in this story. Think about how it felt to the stories that are represented in this room this morning. I mean, we, we've, <laughs> we have had our share of famine in Uniontown, haven't we? And we, we, we know what we want. We think we know what we need. And it's not there. We find ourselves in this, this incredibly different place emotionally and physically when we find out that there's cancer or there's disease. And, and when you hear those words, the first, it's like, this, this isn't the plan. This isn't how it's supposed to work. When everything seems just foreign and death strikes your family. The pain doesn't just evaporate. It doesn't just go away. I mean, even, even if the death was expected, expected, unexpected, the, the pain doesn't go away. Filled with despair. It's not sure if you really want to continue on in your current circumstances. You just feel like there is absolutely no light at the end of the tunnel. But you are staring hard down that tunnel and there is no light. It's feeling lonely and feeling like nobody else understands. It's feeling like nobody wants to love us enough to walk with us through this. Folks, the reality according to Scripture is that people who follow after God experience suffering, trial, and tragedy. And, and, and Scripture is not skipping that part. When we think that God is far from us, we can know that God will show himself faithful to us. Naomi is saying, listen, I have nothing. I am empty. And, and, and to a degree, Naomi exaggerates her hopelessness, doesn't she? I mean, has she forgotten that God has broken the famine? Has she, she, here's the worst part. I've got nothing. I came back. I've got nothing. No one, nobody's walking with me in this. I am bitter. And here's poor Ruth like, you got me. (laughs) 
See, see I would love to fast forward to chapter four um, and show you the full picture of hope. But what I find fascinating is actually verse 22 gives us a glimpse of hope. And this, this glimpse of hope found in verse 22 is, is subtle and yet it's profound. Verse 22 says this, so Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So, so what is the glimpse of hope in that verse? Uh, first, we'll start this, that they're in Bethlehem. Ever heard of it? I mean, it's home, first of all. She's home. Naomi's home. But it's also the city of David, the greatest king in Israel. It's also going to be the place of the greatest demonstration of God's sovereignty and goodness ever. When God himself shows up in the manger. So they're in Bethlehem. Not only are they in Bethlehem, but there's the barley harvest is coming. That's, it's, it's the, the famine is, is definitely broken. That's, okay, great, barley harvest. What does that mean? Well, it means this. The barley harvest was actually the first harvest of the season. And so now the rest of the harvests are going to follow because God has truly broken the famine. There's a glimpse of hope in the fact that, that there's a barley harvest to be had. But, but, but far surpassing those is there's a glimpse of hope in the fact that Ruth is standing next to Naomi in a place that is surrounded by God and his people. I mean, standing right beside her is her Moabite daughter-in-law. When we finish the story, what you find out about her is that it's through her that we get to see the very fullness of God. Yeah, so let's be honest, it hurts, right? It's overwhelming, it's sorrowful, it, uh, it stinks. But we need to understand that even though God allows great tragedy in our lives, not a throwaway, not wasted. It prepares us for something. And I can't answer what that is. I promise, I have a list of questions for God a mile long right now, actively opened. Most of them begin with the word why. But what I do know, based on all of Scripture, based on this story in Ruth chapter 1 is this, that God is faithfully loving and providentially caring for his people at all times. You know, what's interesting is is God knows that we're going to struggle with that statement right there at times. He knows that we're going to enter seasons of our life where it just doesn't seem like he's faithfully loving us. It doesn't seem like he's not caring for us. We're going to enter those seasons of life where it's difficult to overcome those things. And God, God knows we're going to wrestle with that. And so what God has done is he's left us a picture to remind us of how faithful his love for us is, how incredible he cared for us. That's a picture that we get to observe together this morning. It's a picture that's first described in Matthew chapter 26 when Jesus gathers with his disciples at what's become known as the Last Supper. 
When Jesus gathers his disciples together after they've eaten, Jesus takes bread, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and he said this, take and eat, this is my body. After that, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks for it, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I won't drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See, God knew that we were going to need a reminder of his faithful love and providential caring for us. And so he left us a picture. It's a picture we observe as we come together monthly and and receive these elements and take communion together. The picture is simple. It's just a cracker and it's juice. There's nothing profound and there's no hocus pocus that makes it salvific. There's nothing that, that, oh, now I've got my superpowers for the week. It has nothing to do with that. What this is, is like when you open up a family album or you go on your Facebook photos or you open up your phone and you, you look back at pictures from that vacation you had a blast with with your kids. And you look back at those moments so that you can feel yourself going back to that time so that you can wash afresh in what it was that refreshed you or, or just blew your mind or made you laugh hilariously. When you look at those pictures, it brings you back and that's what this is meant to do. For us to stop to take a moment, to look at the cracker, just a cracker, but it's a picture of God's broken body that was broken because of your sin. You take the cup of juice, and it's just juice, but it's a picture of the blood that was shed by Jesus for your sins and for mine. And so this morning, we look at this picture, may we be reminded of God's faithful love and his providential caring for us at all times. I'm gonna pray. The band is gonna come. They'll play. And as the the music begins, if you dismiss yourself from your seat and come to one of the tables and receive the elements and and bring them back to your chairs. Um, When you get back to your chairs, you can open up your Bibles, you can read, you can pray, you can reflect, you can sing with us. Once uh, everybody returns to their seat, and we'll go ahead and we'll, we'll take communion together. Let's pray together. Father, um, you're good. You've proven it time and time again, and I, and, and, I, and I thank you that there's times we can see it clearly. And I pray today would be one of those times for each of us. As we prepare our hearts for communion, as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper together. I pray that you would do a work in each of our hearts. I pray for every person who's sitting here, that God, you would grasp their heart, that you would remind them of what it is that you've done for them. Any of these folks don't know you, God, I pray today would be the day they know you, that they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is the Son of God who came and lived, died for their sins, and then victoriously rose from the grave. Lord, may we be reminded of your faithfulness even in these moments. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.